Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Trying to unscramble the eggs. Can it be done? Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com and at HoustonChronicle.com. Each and every day on the road all over Texas is Jeremy Wallace. Hello, sir. Oh, ready to go. Let's do this. All right. I'm going to give folks a warning right here, uh, right off the bat, right out of the gate. Whatever cliche you want to use. This show is going to be difficult to do, and it's going to be difficult to listen to. As has been said many times at the Texas Capitol, I can explain it, but I can't understand it for you. You're going to have to do some learning along with us as we talk about the electricity markets in Texas. Now, you were making this point before we uh, started the show, Jeremy, when we were off the air. We focus on the, po- the politics of things here, not necessarily the electricity markets in Texas and being experts on that. I, I want to say right, r- right off the bat that I have seen some of the best and brightest energy reporters. And in Texas, we have the best, right? Yeah, I mean, and correct. people who don't necessarily work for Texas media outlets, but they base themselves here in Texas because it's the energy capital of the United States and the world, right? So they're reporting for the Wall Street Journal and, and others. I've seen some of those folks who only focus on energy markets and electricity. They have said, and this is a direct quote from one of them, this whole story about the Texas electricity grid is the most batshit crazy story that they've ever covered. Yep. And, and, and in trying to explain it to people is very difficult. So there was a banner headline in Texas Monthly last night about how the Public Utility Commission chairman, Arthur DeAndrea, who has been under fire at the Texas Capitol, is it fair to say that he's been under siege after the ice storm? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Answering nonstop questions. And he's the last man standing at the commission as well. There are three members of the uh, Utility Commission of Texas, the Public Utility Commission, and two of them are already gone just since the ice storm happened. Right. Yeah. Uh, in fact, one of them wrote a letter of resignation that was a little colorful, if you will. Yes. Uh, Deanne Walker, the former chair, had said that she was treated badly by lawmakers. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what she said. She also basically laid the blame at their feet for leaving the market in the shape that it was in, leading to the humanitarian disaster we had during that storm. Well, in Texas Monthly, there was a story, and I got to give them all credit on this. Um, Lauren Steffi, who used to be a business uh, writer at the Houston Chronicle, yes, uh, Steffi reported this out. They got the audio, secret audio. What is it with secret audio in Texas politics? Yeah, I've heard secret a few stories about that. <laughs> a secret story, uh, secret not secret story, secret audio that was uncovered of Arthur DeAndrea, the PUC chair, talking to some Wall Street types, uh, Bank of America folks, about the energy markets in Texas. Now, we're going to get to this whole question of repricing the electricity market during the storm and all of that. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick uh, prodded the Texas Senate this week to take swift action on that, uh, and we'll do our best to explain it. Um, But in this audio, where DeAndrea is talking to these Wall Street types, he was focusing on the fact that when the storm was unfolding, what they were trying to do was save lives. And so he admits in this audio that was not meant for public consumption. You know, the media is not allowed on these calls. They don't want reporters on there or members of the general public. Uh, But what the Public Utility Commission chairman is saying is basically that what we have now financially is a mess. 
you know, we made a lot of, uh, <laughs> the first week everyone was focused on getting, on getting the lights back on because people were dying in their homes. And, uh, we knew at the time that we were making a bit of a financial mess and now we're doing our best to clean it up. DeAndrea was asked whether repricing is going to happen in the Texas electricity market. And here's his answer. Yeah, look, I want it to be resolved. I took that first step to, to, tip the scale as hard as I could in favor of it being resolved and that being the status quo and that's to provide some some calming force um, but but it's obviously you know it's it's also become a political question here at the state there's some very important people that do not want to reprice full stop and some very important people to do and so we are still sorting that out um, we have an internal deadline at ERCOT of basically next week 30 days so you know I'm <laughs> It's, I, I apologize for the instability, but it, won't, it can't last past next week. Um, so that's that's the good news. You know, I, w- I wish I could tell you there's just no way in heck that it'll ever get repriced. I, I just can't because there are, you know, if, if enough legislators want something done, then they can they can they can pass a bill and get it done. So, but 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 right now it's just a contentious political issue, and um, you know I'm advising on it, and the best I can do is is you know, put the weight of the commission in favor of not repricing for the reasons I said. So he's telling Wall Street, Jeremy, something that is just factual. And, and a lot of people are worked up about this. And, and I get it. It's it's a big headline uh, that the appointee of the governor is essentially telling Wall Street uh, that, look, for those of you who made a lot of money while Texans were freezing to death, because, of course, that did happen. Well, for those of you who made money, it looks like you are going to make that money, right? That these these um, these trades are going to settle out. And you're going to be able to, you know, reap the benefits. Uh, now, there are winners and losers in a deregulated market. And that is just a fact. And we have a deregulated market in Texas. It's not new that we do. The new thing is that it led to a humanitarian crisis a few weeks ago. Right. And so the finger pointing that's going on, the anger that has been, um, you know, shown uh, between Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, Governor Abbott, the Speaker of the House being dragged into this as well, uh, Dade Phelan. Um, those intramural fights, which we're going to get to more of that in just a little bit, but those things are happening because people are legitimately angry, and I don't want to downplay that, right? They're, they're very mad about this. Um, but DeAndrea is just saying something that's factual. He's laying out for these uh, Wall Street folks what's going on in Texas because they play in this market. So let me let me play one other thing from the call here. He said that because he's the only guy standing at the commission, because the other two commissioners quit, um, things are actually a lot easier uh, as far as the um, day-to-day logistics of trying to figure out the aftermath of this crisis. Everything works a lot easier as far as the governor being able to talk with him, legislators being able to talk with him, et cetera. And here's something that plays right into the politics of it was uh, DeAndrea expected that he would be the only member of the commission for quite some time. In fact, as long as a year. Our statute says that vacancies um, don't don't affect the, the ability of a single commissioner to to exercise the power of the commission. So that's fine. I expect it to be that way for a while, um, just because you know I, because of just the way politics works. I think it's it's hard to get people through. I don't think the governor's really interested in, and I think they probably enjoy just having one person up there because it's you know they can they can secure promises for me that I can't and then I can't then say that oh well my fellow commissioners wouldn't go along. So I think it's 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 easier for everyone actually. As much as I miss my colleagues, um, in a time like this when I'm communicating all the time with the legislature, it's easier to just be going through one person. So I expect it to be this way for a while, at least a year, uh, with just me up there. Why would it be for a full year? Well, let me help explain that. Um, Any time the governor makes an appointment to one of these boards or commissions, they face uh, confirmation by the Texas Senate, and the Senate's in session now, in regular session, and as we have reported here, we expect not just one, but maybe multiple special sessions of the Texas legislature, which could last into next year, actually, because they may not get redistricting data until September. I think that's the latest timeline on all that. Um, so they may be working on a few issues. They might be working on redistricting, Jeremy. They might be working on uh, you know, figuring out whatever they have not figured out in the regular session. They'll be working on that in the special sessions, on the electricity stuff, uh, and all of that. This is leading to a big standoff between Patrick's Senate and Governor Abbott's administration, right? 
Yeah, and, and I think this is a kind of important point. Clearly, our you know listeners are not like tuning in for the number one utility podcast in the state of Texas, right? We are the number <laughs> that, one political right. podcast for a reason. Correct. And so I don't expect everybody to like know the ins and outs of the utility grid. But the the core of this, you know, for people to know is that during the crisis, the price of wholesale fuel jumped from what was normally fifty dollars per kilowatt hour to mm-hmm. nine thousand. So as you can imagine. Electricity companies suddenly were paying a ton more money mm-hmm. if they didn't have supply, right? Yeah. The, the ones that had backup, you know, were probably okay because they didn't have to go onto the market and buy, you know, the electricity at that price. So they had you know, reserves ready to go, and they yep. could even sell what they had back out there. Mm-hmm. So the the bottom line is a lot of people were, you know, utility companies who were caught without reserves mm-hmm. were suddenly spending a lot more money to produce power. Right. And now because Texas is so deregulated and we have so many different you know, power companies, mm-hmm. not everybody was treated the same, right? And so right. so you know, people have probably heard stories about gritty and these wholesale fuel prices yeah. going sky high for some people. But then there are millions of Texans who are on these stable rate plans that don't change much. And if your utility company was good at preparing for the storm, mm-hmm. like I'm going to put a, you know, you know, a couple of them out there you know, along the Rio Grande Valley, uh, up in the Texas Panhandle, mm-hmm. they were pretty well positioned for the storm. And so yeah. the folks in those areas didn't get hit very hard. Yeah. Some places that weren't so well prepared, we're going to put, you know, CPS in San Antonio uh, didn't have a lot of reserves and they mm-hmm. were forced to buy power at those huge rates. And yeah. so they're the ones who are kind of hurting right now. And you can see that's the pressure that's kind of around all of this politics right now. So you have one group of people in the legislature who say, well, let's just say that was a mistake to price it that high mm-hmm. and lower the rates retroactively. Yeah. Then you have this other side that includes the governor who, you know, the governor just on Monday was telling me, you know, when I asked him some questions about this, he said, look, there's a piece in our, you know, in our Texas constitution in the bill of rights that says you can't do things retroactively. Yeah. You know, in this case, you know, retroactively changing the buildings to help some utility companies mm-hmm. while hurting others, you can't do. And so right. I, I, it's just important to kind of lay that out so people understand that like this rate, you know, fight has now put, you know, Dan Patrick, who wants that repricing done, versus Abbott, who doesn't think we can do this. Right. And it's uh, the reason that this episode is called Unscrambling the Egg. Can you yep. do that? That's what Patrick wanted to do with this bill that they moved at lightning speed on in the Senate on Monday. We had first reported out at quorumreport.com on Sunday night that the Senate was going to move as quickly as Monday to get that done immediately some folks said wait a minute the senate is not even scheduled to come in until tuesday and the short version of this is they suspended every rule necessary to pass that thing um up including going back to the previous legislative day which some people made a big deal about this it's not really that big a deal that they, they have done this before um the senators uh returned to the floor on monday at 11 a.m and essentially what they did was they rescinded the resolution that said that they were not going to come back into session until Tuesday. So that meant that they were actually on Thursday on the legislative calendar, even though the, even though the calendar day was Monday, I'm not going to bore you with how all that works. Bottom line is this, they introduced that bill and passed that bill after having it heard in a committee all on the same day. Is that strange? It's very unusual. It has happened before. It's not without precedent, but it, is um, sort of damning the torpedoes. They wanted to get this done. So Lieutenant Governor Patrick um, has made this just his cause over the last couple of weeks that he thinks that the electricity prices should be reconfigured for that entire week. During a press conference after that bill was passed out of the Senate and sent to the House, the most important thing that I think he said, and, you know, a lot was made about him saying he's not running against Greg Abbott. And by the way, nobody asked him whether he was running against, uh, you know, against Abbott. He just volunteered that. Um, and I think he was saying that because of the tension that you're talking about between all of them. Um, he said he's not running. I mean, he says, I'm not running against Greg Abbott. OK, so, OK, got it. Um, the most important thing he said in his press conference is that he doesn't know who the winners and losers are. As you were laying it out, there are winners and losers. There are people who made a lot of money 
and people who are uh, owed a lot of money or people who can't pay their bills now. And these aren't average Texans. These are the companies involved in the electricity market in Texas, right? So we're talking about which companies are winners and losers here. And what is still true, even after DeAndrea resigned, pending the appointment of another chairman, even after he resigned, what's still true is what he said to Dan Patrick during uh, an exchange they had in an exchange that was in the Senate last week. Did you see where Dan Patrick walked right into the hearing of uh, the jurisprudence committee last week during their, during their meeting about um, all of this and DeAndrea was testifying. Yep. Patrick took the rare step as Lieutenant governor of sitting down in a hearing and grilling the witness. All right. Patrick was pointing to some prior testimony and he sounds like, um, like this is law and order. Yeah. He, he sounds like he's a prosecutor, right? Patrick was pointing to what someone else had said earlier and he's trying to get the PUC chairman to agree that if they would just unscramble those eggs, if they would reprice the market, then money would go to consumers. But listen to this. The money just won't go to consumers. That is not true. You also said over there this morning that none of this money would go to consumers. That's what you said this morning. You said you were asked, correct? You said that. That's right. Okay. Miss Bivens said today that that five billion I think her exact quote would go to entities that dollars would go to entities that serve consumers. Right. Those so, f- so if five billion goes to entities that serve consumers, is it not true that it would go to consumers? That's correct. It will not go to consumers. It goes no, to the entities. That it goes serve. to the entities that serve consumers. Right. And they pocket it. They po- give it to their shareholders. Do you know that for a fact? Yeah, I, I work in this market. Yes, I know that for a fact. They, they have fixed contracts with those consumers. So if they don't get that money, might they have to pass on to the consumers they serve their loss? It's a, they might try, but it's a very competitive space, and those consumers can shop and leave and go switch to a different plan. That's the feature of the market. So they might try to pass on their consumers. They may try. I don't think so your succeed. testimony in the House today that this wouldn't impact consumers is not really accurate. I think it's accurate, sir. Well, he stuck to that, and I don't. I don't see any evidence that where Patrick is going with that is true because of what we said earlier. The vast majority of people in Texas are on fixed rate plans. You're not gonna, if they reprice the market, you're not going to get a check from the retailer for you know for some amount for a hundred dollars or two hundred dollars or whatever. Um, if they don't reprice the market, um, you're not going to see your rates increase unless you get a new contract in the future that has a higher uh, contra- higher rate. Uh, but as the PUC chairman said, it's a competitive market. Yep. So the company, it's it's a dynamic situation. You can go shop around for something else uh, unless you're in Austin, for example, where you have Austin Energy and that's your only uh, option. Now, Patrick tries to also get the PUC chairman to say that the Public Utility Commission and the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, ERCOT, should not have left the electricity prices high. The market cap, which you mentioned, is $9,000 per megawatt hour. That's a commodity that usually trades around $30, right? Something like that. Now, that it, it changes, and that's why it's, a, you know, it's called a spot market. It goes up and down. The retailer is there in part, in large part, to shield you from that, right? If you have a fixed-rate plan, they manage the other side of that. You know, if, when it's 30 bucks, your rate is still, you know, set such that you're going to, you know, pay about 100 bucks a month or whatever it is, you know, 100, 200, whatever it is for your house. Um, and if it goes up to 9,000, you're still going to pay the same rate because you have a fixed rate plan from that retailer. Now, the PUC chairman pushes back on this idea that they should not have left the rates for electricity high when it was so cold during that week of the ice storm. On that Monday, pretty much everyone that could come on board was on board, correct, with power? I don't think that's accurate. I think as Bill described it was what I understood, was that people were coming on and off all the time. It was a separate, it wasn't just everyone and it was stable. It was, it was more this, up and down, people coming on and off. So why didn't you let the market be the market instead of pushing the price to 9000 The market was killing people, that's why. The market was killing people in their homes, and I, I had lost faith in it. And every decision we made at that point forward was to get the lights on. See, the root of the problem here is that the market in which the PUC chairman is operating and in which ERCOT is operating, where Bill Magnus, uh, the head of ERCOT, has also 
made the decision to step aside. These guys who are now collateral damage from all this, uh, they're, they're, you know, they're leaving their jobs now. In the moment, the decision they had to make was this, Jeremy. How do we get more electricity onto a grid where the only way to do that, because it's a free market, is to incentivize uh, the generation of power by leaving the power uh, prices high? I'll give you the example. So with industrial uh, plants, a lot of them uh, use a ton of electricity. Uh, for their industrial side, but they also have what they call cogen plants where they can turn on uh, a generator to put electricity onto the grid. And the reason they would do that in a free market is because they would be paid to do that, right? So yep. if you leave the price high, that means the people who have generation uh, facilities and, and the, they have the capacity to do that, if you leave the price high, they will want to do that because they'll want to be paid because this is what? A free market. Now, you only had three senators vote no when Patrick brought this bill to the floor to reprice the energy market. Two of them are Republicans. One of them is a Democrat. Now, with the Democrats, you can imagine <laughs> it's easy to, to figure out what the uh, objections would be. Uh, but with Senator Kelly Hancock, who's a Republican from Tarrant County, and Senator Brandon Creighton, who's from uh, Montgomery County, these GOP senators, uh, who I would call in this instance, I would call them Republican classic. And it's not this populist thing that, that Patrick is trying to push. The Republican classic version is that to try to reprice the market through an action of the legislature is government intrusion into the free market. Right. Yeah. To, to, to after the fact, want to go back and replay the game to, to change the rules after the fact. One guy in South Texas said to me, it's, it's kind of like with the Cowboys, like like Dez caught it, but the Cowboys are not going to the Super Bowl. You don't get to go back to that game and change what happened because you don't like the outcome, right? Again, you can't unscramble the eggs. Now, for, for DeAndrea talking to the Wall Street guys earlier, what you heard earlier in the show, if you want to think about long-term um, consequences for Texas, why don't you go ahead and say to investors that, yeah, we have a free market here. But anytime you make a bunch of money based on having invested in Texas, if it doesn't turn out the way that we wanted it to turn out politically, then guess what? The legislature might go back and take your profits from you after the fact, after you have made investment in Texas. And then that would potentially also um, make it even harder to get some of these companies um, to be able to get capital to winterize their and summarize and, and weatherize, if you will. They're generation plants. In other words, right now we need more incentive for people to invest in Texas, not to be running investors out of here by telling them, hey, guess what? If if you make a lot of money in Texas, we might just undo that because we didn't like the result of the market. Well, yeah, and, and I keep going back to this idea that you know not only that, but you're also messing with the winners and the losers in the power industry within Texas too. It's like the so the ones who were well prepared and were able to sell their excess online, you know, onto the grid, made some money off of this, which is good for their businesses and then their customers, right? But you're going to take that away from them because they were well prepared and help bail out. You know, Brazos, you know, which is the power, a uh, huge power company that, you know, just filed for bankruptcy because they weren't prepared. They had to go onto the wholesale market and buy more. And so you can see, like, so we're going to take money essentially out of the pockets of the places that were well prepared. The Texas Panhandle, the Rio Grande Valley, Austin. You know, I was told you know, by a good Republican that this is the one occasion in which Austin actually did everything just right. <laughs> they had yeah. enough power. They had the, you know, the reserves to handle this. The outages still happened, of course, but that was yeah. ERCOT directed. That wasn't them saying, oh, we don't want to make any more power. It's like they had to put their, you know, their electricity on the grid. But they were prepared in ways that other places weren't. So we're literally going to take money from the people who were prepared to go bail out the ones who were not as well prepared. Try to figure that out in your Republican world of right. not intervening in the market. Yeah, exactly. Now, you talked to Governor Abbott a little bit about this, but he wasn't there to talk about that, was he? Correct. Yeah. In fact, tell me if I have this right. Grade my paper. 
was Governor Abbott um, really trying to talk about just anything other than all of this this past week? (laughs) In fact, he wasn't going to talk about this one lick on Monday at this (laughs) press conference they were at until I asked the question when I was told Mm -hmm. not to ask any more questions. (laughs) (laughs) Well, asking questions. I mean, what what are you doing that for? Um, You were at Senator Paul Betancourt's district office. In right. Houston, right, which is just up the hallway from KSEV Radio, which is owned by – it's in the same building. I think it's on the same floor right around the corner there in the hallway. Uh, yeah, I do know that. Uh, KSEV Radio is owned by Dan Patrick, the okay. lieutenant governor. All right. Yeah. It was very convenient. It was the same district office that Patrick used when he was the senator for that same district. Um, and they were there to talk about what? Election reform. Oh, okay. A so, general electorate. Well, Abbott was there to talk about election reform mm-hmm. generally, and mm-hmm. you know Paul Bentoncourt and Representative Briscoe Kane were there mm-hmm. to talk about specific bills that they have just filed that they hope will you know somehow get through the maze of the legislative process. <laughs> okay, here's uh, Abbott talking at that press conference about that topic. Our objective is very simple, and that is to ensure that every eligible voter gets to vote is also to ensure that only eligible votes are the ones that count at the ballot box. So what kind of proposals are they talking about uh, from Betancourt's side? And I know that uh, with uh, Briscoe Kane on the House side, he's the elections chairman uh, in the House. He's laid out his sort of omnibus bill, a uh, House bill, is it six or seven? I think it's six. Um, it, it just taking on a whole ton of different changes uh, to the election code. And a lot of it seems, Jeremy, aimed at the kinds of things that were being done specifically in Harris County last year during the pandemic, right? Drive-through yep. voting and trying to get more mail ballots to people and things like that. Yeah, the quick version of this is a you know want to make sure you can't do 24-hour voting locations like Harris County did. You can't do mm-hmm. drive-through voting uh, locations like Harris County did. You can't mail out. Uh, you know, absentee ballots to everybody like Harris County tried to do. Uh, so you can see a lot of this is like focused on Harris County. Thus, you know, surprise, surprise, Abbott was in Harris County, you know, talking about this, you know, hitting on it again. But these mm-hmm. bills also go in a lot of other places, too. You know, the one that I kind of, you know, you know, was caught by surprise by was uh, Senate Bill 1114. That's Paul Bentoncourt's bill that would essentially redo the voter purge we saw a couple years ago. Remember where they had a mm-hmm. list of of, you know, you know, voters who had, you know, originally registered, you know, for driver's licenses and were non-citizens, you know, they put those on a list, you know, of people that might not be re- eligible voters and they tried mm-hmm. to go knock them all off the rolls. Turned out there was lots of mistakes in that list, right? Well, now, you know, Benton Court uh, wants to, you know, take another shot at this, but he wants the state to be more careful how they do the data so they don't accidentally mm-hmm. put, say, let's say 60,000 people who shouldn't have been on the list in the first place. So it's another voter yeah. purge that they basically want to get, but they want to do it in a better, cleaner way that but, makes sure they're trying to really target who they want to target. Yeah, trying to do this without screwing it up like that. You're, you're, you're doing the nice version. I'll just say they're trying to do it without screwing it up like they did before. And in fact, it led to uh, the Secretary of State at the time, David Whitley, being busted by the Senate at that time with the uh, basically with the opposition of Democrats only uh, who were um, in position to be able to stop his nomination from going forward. A rare flex of muscle from Texas Senate Democrats on that deal. This um, voter purge and some of these other changes to voting laws, people will ask, why are they doing this? And and in Texas, it, it's sort of ironic to want to change the laws. If you're a Republican, change the laws in elections that you win. Yeah. They, they won all the elections. I mean, you know, they won everything. Last year, um, <laughs> last year they... Uh, were able to uh, register new Republican voters at a really fast clip and kept up with the Democrats on that, right? They held all the seats that they had previously had in the Texas House, which was very much under threat, right? You had Democrats spending a lot of money and talking about how they were. I mean, there was a lot of hype around that, but they were also spending real resources on that. And Republicans had to fight back as well. I think in some ways, uh, two things going on. One, Republicans want elections that are not as expensive for them. Okay, I mean, like when you talk about redistricting, it's not just that they want the districts to be more Republican. They also want the districts to be more affordable. In in the last election cycle, they spent 
tens of millions of dollars holding on to seats that should have been cakewalks previously, right? Yep. In places like Fort Bend County, Collin County, Denton County, you get it. Um, and then the other thing is they are trying to placate what is the base of the Republican Party, which does believe whether it and let's just say it's not true, but they do believe that President Trump's election was stolen from him. Yep. Right. And so the way that these I mean, tell me if I'm characterizing this right, the way that the Republican leadership here is trying to thread the needle on that is by offering up some what they're calling, quote, election integrity reforms yep. to be able to show their base that they did everything they could to make sure that what that base believes happened in 2020 will never happen again, even if it didn't happen in the first place. Is yeah, that close? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and look at where Governor Abbott was on Monday trying to make this case by being in Harris County. It's like there's, there's a real good electoral reason for why he's sitting there, right? In 2014, uh, Governor Abbott wins Harris County uh, by 4% of the, you know, by 4%, right? Fast forward to uh, his reelection four years later, and he lost it by six percent. You know, mm. Dan Patrick's even you know greater example. You know, he wins Harris County on his first campaign, you know, for lieutenant governor by oh, three. Sure. Mm-hmm. On his reelection, loses it by fourteen. You can see there's a dramatic change that's happening in Harris County in the electorate by the number of people who have been registered to vote and the participation that hasn't been good for Republicans. And Mm -hmm. Harris County is so big that it's bringing down their numbers statewide because of just how mammoth it is. You can win, you know, 200 counties in the state Mm -hmm. of Texas that are Republican that are mostly rural, and you're still not going to have enough votes to counter what is happening in Harris County. So the fact that they're kind of cracking down on how Harris County is expanding yeah. its electorate makes total sense from, wait, that is our problem right now. We mm-hmm. need to stop them from kicking <laughs> our butts in every cycle. Because if Patrick lost by 14 points yeah. last time, how mm-hmm. much is he going to lose Harris County by next time? Right. You know, Is that going to get worse? There's a really good sense that it could get worse for him. And how much worse can it get before he loses statewide? Unlike the electric uh, markets, at least on this, these particular Republicans are talking about changing the rules going forward rather than changing yeah. the rules going back. You know, yeah. um, but, but I would say um, that what Democrats might need to think about, and some of our Democratic listeners might not like this, but look, the votes are there in the Texas legislature to do some version of this. Right. I mean, it, yep. it, that doesn't mean that exactly what's been laid out here is what's going to pass. Um, but what Democrats may need to do across the country if they want to remain competitive in these places where they have been getting more competitive, as you point out, in places like Harris County, Dallas County, and the Texas suburbs and elsewhere, in the places where Texas is growing population-wise, the Democrats are doing better. Yep. That's just, you know, bottom line what's happening. What they may need to do is shift some of this, like this, there's this industry of, you know, uh, Democratic digital messaging and comms people, communications people, all this sort of stuff. What they probably need is an industry of voter rule compliance. Like they need to go into different neighborhoods, different cities, the areas where Democrats tend to vote and in some of these suburban places as well, and make sure that if, if Republicans are going to pass this stuff, the Democrats need to make sure that the people who would support them know what they need to do to be able yeah. to go vote. Right. It's like, you know, you've got to have your driver's license. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. I mean, they're going to put up all sorts of roadblocks to try to keep those various uh, groups who tend to vote Democratic from voting. Yep. Right. And so what they need to do is fight back with voter information and maybe just, you know, uh, once we get past covid, the vaccine is in place. They should have academies for voters where yep. they teach people how to do this and then go teach people in your neighborhoods how to do it. Um, but I'm going to say it this way. And again, some Democrats are not going to like this. Whining about it is not going to keep you competitive in elections. They need to go out and figure out how to do this. And that doesn't mean that if some of this stuff runs afoul of the Voting Rights Act or anything else that they shouldn't challenge it in court. But in the meantime, the laws are the laws and they need to comply with them so that they can remain competitive. And look, last year in 2020, Democrats were more competitive at the statewide level, right? I mean, it's not like they can't do it even in a state that already has some of the strictest voting laws in the country. Well, and if they need any motivation, 2018 is that motivation, because if you look at what happened, you know, coming out of 2014, one of the big things that changed was instead of just complaining about the system that was set up, uh, Democrats, you know, you know, started doing this effort of trying to 
you know, create you know, voter registrars, you know, deputy registrars that they could have to help register voters, right? So they would be complying with the rules. Texas has a rule where, like, every all 254 counties, uh, you have to have a, a, a specific voter register to register new voters. You can't mm-hmm. just, like, be from Travis County and sign somebody up in Williamson County. You have to have a registrar from, you know, Williamson County do it. So what did the Democrats do? They did the work to register registrars in all those different places and so that's why the voter registration surged for them going into 2018 and why beto o'rourke had enough voters out there where he came within three points of beating ted cruz like they need to kind of re you know hey look whatever the rules are you just have to play by the republican rule book and try to figure out how to register your voters you did it once before almost successfully just mm-hmm. do it again. You know, it's like so as much as you change the rules, it's who adapts to it, right? You know, that's the those are the people who, who are victorious. Look at Georgia. Georgia, they figured out how to work within the system the Republicans mm-hmm. had created to still get their message out. Do the same thing instead of right. just complaining about it. So they may not have liked the situation, the way the market was set up for what they're trying to do, but they were successful anyhow. Ooh, I see what you did there. <laughs> yeah, you do. Okay, so There's Abbott did, here. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm. Believe me, I'm, I'm like a bulldog. I'm staying on this bone. So, so Abbott didn't want to talk about the electricity market fight, not very much, right? They didn't want you asking a bunch of questions about that. So he was there to talk about voting. What else did he talk about this week? Well, certainly not the ice storm, not very much. He was also on Fox News Channel because, of course, he was to talk about what he calls an immigration crisis now on the Texas-Mexico border. He says. It is the fault of President Joe Biden. It's the Biden open border policies uh, that are inviting even more illegal immigration and actually have created this humanitarian crisis. Uh, As you know, I went down to the border this past week and I met with Border Patrol officers. Uh, And here's what they told me. The Border Patrol officers themselves told me that they informed the Biden administration that because of the policy changes, it was going to lead to this massive surge that we are just now beginning to see, knowing that's going to be getting far worse in the coming months. Uh, They also said that the reason for the change, the reason for the increase in the influx is because of the policy change by the Biden administration. More importantly, though, Maria, is this challenge. And that is uh, the Border Patrol officers told me uh, that the Biden administration policies, they are enriching and they are empowering the drug cartels in Mexico who make money off of the people that they assist in smuggling them into the state of Texas. What I have noticed about um, these influxes of migrants, which of course happens, you do have these surges in uh, undocumented uh, folks coming across the border. One thing to make very clear, if somebody's coming here for uh, refuge, if, if they're coming here because uh, they need asylum, that is an attempt at legal immigration yeah okay so we have these folks who are trying to come in this this always happens jeremy i've noticed people are very selective about when they get mad about it this has been going on my whole life living in texas i mean uh, you know growing up on the farm in wharton county there were there were only two types of people who would work the land and that was the people who owned it and the undocumented immigrants by the time i was about 15 years old when i was um i will say there was an evolution to that even within my lifetime when i was more like eight nine ten years old we had more uh, during the summer. We had more of uh, you know, the young men from the high school, you know, people who were 17 and 18 who would come and, you know, ride the tractor uh, around the uh, field and, you know, do the plowing and, and help us with the harvest and everything like that. By the time I was 15, 16, it was only undocumented immigrants who would do that. No white people. Yeah. You know, we had we had and and. At the time, I didn't even know they were undocumented people at the time, but that's what was going on. Um, this has been going on forever uh there does seem to be an uptick right now and i mean in fairness uh this looks like it's the largest surge that we've had in a while some of that could be due uh to uh, what they call uh sort of the uh attraction of what's happening in the united states with certain policies but there's also what they call sort of a push uh out of out of wherever the people are coming from you may have more violence uh, you know, because of drug cartels, you may have more, uh, you know, poverty in the different places where, you know, it, it may be uh, that whatever the situation is for these folks in the countries they're coming from, that those situations have deteriorated. And so they, you know, they come in larger numbers and there's safety in these caravans or safety in coming together. Yeah. Um, but this does seem to be one of those things 
that the governor and the lieutenant governor as well, he was on Fox News Channel talking about the same thing. Um, they do seem to be using this once again to reach out to the Republican base, because at this moment, after the elections that we were just talking about in 2020, the election of consequence remains about one year from right now, which is the March primary. Yep. Well, and and for our listeners out there, if any of y'all remember the days before COVID-19, you know, back in those olden days of, say, 2019, 2018, Mm -hmm. uh, in those years, you know, you know, this is easy to forget that we had record surges of migrants coming to the border and people Mm -hmm. trying to cross the border. Our apprehensions were off the charts Mm-hmm. While President Trump was in office, so it's not like this is you know uh, you know finally just now happening. The thing that really shut that down was COVID nineteen. COVID nineteen right. shut the border completely, and nobody was crossing for Brilliant any point. reason. Yeah, yep. it's like so you couldn't get across there. It's like and you know and and like you mentioned, a lot of these people when they're coming over for asylum reasons, they're simply coming across the border and then claiming asylum. It's like it's you know. We stopped that in the last year and a half with Mm -hmm. COVID, where we we weren't letting people even get across the bridges to do that. And so now they were stuck in Mexico. That's why you had those camps down there on the Mexican side where it was filled not with Mexicans. You know, we're talking like, you know, these were Central Americans, South Mm -hmm. Americans. You know, these were people from all over the place who were, you know, stuck in these camps uh, trying to get into the United States, even make their asylum claim. So, yeah, it's like just so people understand that, like, this surge certainly probably is happening partly because Biden is now the president, but also because COVID-19 restrictions are what they are. uh, Mm -hmm. And they have started to, you know, you know sink down a little bit more so now people are able to come across right we're starting to make some progress on it i mean the vaccine is taking hold in some places uh, with you know with all the stories that uh, we were talking about uh, even a few weeks ago about the uh, unevenness and what some people were calling a disastrous rollout of the vaccine um, that is starting to even out Right. And to people and and more of it's becoming available because now we have the Johnson and Johnson vaccine that's been added to the mix. uh, In addition to the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines as well, Um, I would say that Texas has had a lot of success with a market in which you have an elastic labor force available. uh, And that has been the case for decades. Uh, Governor Abbott, Governor Perry, Governor Bush, et cetera. They have talked forever about the Texas miracle. You don't get to the robust economy that we have unless you have a labor force that can come in and work and then leave uh, when there isn't any work. Right. I mean, that that's part of the mix. Right. So when you hear all this stuff about, oh, they're taking jobs from Americans and all that, it started to maybe become a little more true that that statement did after they locked the border down after 9-11 and people would come across the border and stay. Because coming in and going back the way they used to years ago became a lot less safe. And that actually is one of the things that has driven people to look to the help of drug cartels, human traffickers, etc. I've heard these stories from uh, former federal uh, former federal prosecutors who would talk about the idea that uh, someone would try to bring their family into Texas. And what happens is they'd pay some amount like $600 to be able to bring a person in. That person might get caught by the Border Patrol, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and they would send them back to Mexico. And then that same family would pay $600 again to the same exact people to try to bring them in again. This is the ridiculous cycle that we're in with all that. So maybe looking at the public policy as a whole and figuring figuring out what we need to do here would be more productive, but we're not into that right now. The other big... um, the other big distract call me cynical the other big distraction was the dropping of the mask mandate in the estimation of a lot of people governor abbott was this two weeks ago at this point yeah um governor abbott said that the mask mandate is gone and texas can be open 100 percent once again and something that we saw very quickly jeremy was a lot of business owners saying that it's unfair that the governor is no longer taking the responsibility upon himself to lead on that issue. And instead, business owners interacting with their customers are the ones to have to break it to them that you're still going to have to wear a mask in here because it's our company policy. And a lot of small businesses are having to go through this. Um, I think that there are a couple of reasons for this. Number one is something that Governor Abbott himself has talked about, which is COVID liability protections. 
there are a lot of businesses that even though they would like to be open 100%, they're not going to do that because they think they might get sued over potentially exposing people to COVID if they're open, you know, with people crammed into that business. So that's one problem. Another problem is, and I, this is one of those that I did not anticipate, but I guess I should have, um, some racial animus that has come out of this. It was a story out of San Antonio. Uh, there's this guy, Mike Wynn. He was on CNN, um, and he was talking about the mass mandate, the fact that Governor Abbott decided to get rid of it. Um, and he is still requiring people to, who, you know, who come into his restaurant to wear the mask because he believes that's what's, that's what's safe. Um, and here he is on CNN talking about the fact that because he's still requiring the masks, he got to his job the other day. He got to his business the other day, and the whole thing is vandalized, covered in racist slurs. It's all over the windows and the patio tables and everything else there. There is some concern. You know, um, today some of the threats came in, and they were a lot more active than normal. Um, so, you know, I'm still um, trying to decide. I, I'm, ever since Wednesday, I've kind of been more vigilant of, um, when I'm out and about and just making sure I know my surroundings, you know, so, um, but there's a concern that this is going to escalate to something worse, you know, I mean, what, what, what's the next step they can do? And that's going to be physical harm or something, you know, even death for me. So, um, you know, the, the death threats have came, you know, and, and, and the other threats are coming in. So, I mean, there is a lot of concern, a lot of, um, maybe unintended consequences there, Jeremy. And it was interesting that the governor had, in the estimation of some, tried to change the subject from the ice storm back to COVID, when, as you mentioned on our last show two weeks ago, you just had Ron DeSantis come to Texas recently and talk just about less than a mile from the Texas Capitol and the governor's mansion about the idea that everything should be open yeah. like they are in Florida, right? A lot of conservatives have really praised DeSantis for his handling of COVID restrictions and getting rid of COVID restrictions. Um, I then saw this morning consult poll that said that after the governor had made the decision here, after Abbott said no more mass mandate and businesses can open again, his numbers with independents went down after that. So then I wonder if the mask mandate wasn't enough to shift people away from talking about the ice storm and the state's calamitous response to that. I guess you start to see why the governor's talking about other things this week, like voting restrictions and immigration, because maybe getting rid of the mass mandate and lifting some of these other COVID restrictions, maybe that didn't get as far politically as he wanted to get, because now he's not talking about that. He's not talking about the mass stuff either anymore. Yep. Now he's talking about these other things. Yeah. And to me, it's an exclamation point on what you've said over and over again, you know, over the years that we've been doing this. Uh, this is a primary state, you know, for yeah. Republicans. And we are now fully in primary season with, you know, the primaries, you know, right now scheduled for March of next year. That's not a lot of time for opponents to come out of the woodwork and take him on. But it's still enough time for him to be worried about that and so like at this point for you know so what do you do in a primary if you're a republican he's like you want to stress your stance on immigration you want to you know stress your you know stance on border security you want to talk about you know stopping you know voter fraud those are the issues that really resonate right now with the base of the republican party it's no surprise that abbott wants to really focus on this and reassure republican voters he's their guy on these issues don't listen to anybody else <laughs> yeah absolutely uh, one other big story uh in politics in southeast texas and it, it speaks to the kind of police chief Art Acevedo is that I would say what I just said. That's a big political story. Yep. Right. And not every police chief is as political as he is. Is that fair? Correct. He's leaving Houston. And where's he going? Miami. Miami, Florida. Um, he was uh, at the airport coming back from Miami after it had been reported out that he's leaving to go to Florida, uh, the television camera at KHOU uh, asked him about you know, departing Houston, where he's only been for a few years after being the Austin police chief previously. And he was pretty emotional about it. It's tough. I mean, my eyes are red. <laughs> Imagine why. Because uh, it's a great department. And uh, 
I'm gonna miss these men and women, and I'm gonna miss this community. Um, we truly are the envy of other cities. Truly the envy of other cities. So why is he leaving? Well, of course, there's lots of speculation about that. He's a pretty polarizing police chief. Uh, over the years, I covered many times when he would, um, you know, appear in front of uh, various uh, committees uh, yeah. to talk about uh, very controversial legislation, be it immigration legislation, gun legislation, you name it. Uh, he always has an opinion. Yep. And he's always ready to share it. Right. Um, and there are a lot of people who really like him for that. And there was a lot of speculation that maybe he would be running for mayor of Houston after uh, Sylvester Turner is termed out. So that's not happening now, Correct. I guess. I mean, I guess I guess he could come back. I mean, that, that could happen. He's leaving. He could come back. Um, but not everybody liked him either. Um, did you see this in the Houston Chronicle? Uh, this is at cron.com. Farewell to Art Acevedo, the LeBron James of performative self-promotion <laughs> by Dan Carson. <laughs> did you did you read this? I did not um, read that one, no. Yeah, well, you know, there were those who said that he was sort of a Michael Jordan of yeah. policing and some of these other things. And Dan doesn't agree. Uh, he also called him things like – and. <laughs> Sometimes when you would listen to Art Acevedo talk, you would think that the Houston Police Department had no history of problems with racial minorities. Yeah, correct. Right. Um, so uh, Carson said in his article, and again, you, people should read this. It's just kind of funny. Farewell to Art Acevedo, the LeBron James of performative self-promotion. He also called him the Peyton Manning of not releasing body cam footage. He called him the Meryl Streep of keeping poor people in prison. Oh, wow. He called him the Wilt Chamberlain of no-knock search warrants. All right. So the, the, this, is not a, this is not a conservative person writing this, although he had a lot of conservative critics as well. Um, and he would mix it up quite often, as we were saying here before. He's, he's very political. He would mix it up with Republican office holders in Texas like Attorney General Ken Paxton. They got yep. into it about something the other day, right? Yeah. And, and he had a, you know, a couple of, you know, big Twitter exchanges. I know with John Cornyn, uh, I want to say it was about a year ago where he was going mm -hmm. back and forth with him on, uh, you know, domestic violence issues, you know, and yeah. on gun issues. And, you know, he came to Beto O'Rourke's defense a couple of times, you know, when he was fighting Ted Cruz, you know, so, right. so he's never, you know, there's certainly a lot of Republicans will be happy to not see, you know, the police chief on the other side of the, their Twitter account, mm -hmm. you know, blasting back at them <laughs> right there also uh though is always the benefit of having uh, somebody to be against right yeah, I mean, true. in some ways they'll miss him although uh in that exchange with ken paxton the other day they were talking about bail reform yeah. um in, which we've talked about here and as you have noted is is a very heavy lift in the legislature they they have talked about it for many sessions in a row about uh, now been the governor says that it's one of his priorities this time and who knows if they'll actually get something done on it uh, but in their exchange Paxton was taking uh, Acevedo to task about the issue and saying that there were too many violent criminals on the streets in Houston because of Acevedo as police chief. And Acevedo came back at him by saying something about how, look, you yourself, attorney general, are free on bond. So you do know intimately how all this works. I don't think I don't think Paxton's going to miss him. In his, in his Twitter feed. Um, I think that's about to, as true of a statement as you can make at this point. Yeah, we are going to continue to follow this fallout from the ice storm in Texas and what it all means um, moving forward uh, at HoustonChronicle.com and QuorumReport.com. Uh, we've got it all for you there. If you enjoy the show, and you know you do, you've listened to just about an hour now, you should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you listen to your favorite podcasts. I don't really judge you. Actually, I do. I'm going to let you guess which of those I don't like. You, Whichever one you listen to us on, you should give us a five-star review. Thank you very much for that. Uh, we will see you right here next week on the Texas Take. Mm -hmm.